Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. There's like so many stories about chefs and restaurant people that that's kind of how they enter the yeah. kitchen. I was a lost puppy. You know, I was fortunate enough to find a mentor at one of the first restaurants that I worked at that just, he took me under his wing and he and I kind of had similar backgrounds in a way, like, you know, family stuff that kind of brought him into the kitchen and he was an amazing mentor. That is the voice of Kevin O'Donnell of Justo Restaurant in Newport, Rhode Island. Kevin is our guest today on Andrew Talks to chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. It has been a very busy week here at our home base. And to be honest, I don't have any news. I don't have any. Unfortunately, words of inspiration to offer during this continual dragging Omicron surge that we're all experiencing, not just in the United States, but all over the world. So I am going to get right to our interview today. Our feature guest is Kevin O'Donnell. Kevin is a chef I'd never met before. I understand he's a longtime listener to the show. We met via his publicist, Susan Hosmer, who accompanied us for the interview and he is the chef of a relatively new restaurant. It opened during COVID. It's doing quite well. It's very well received. It is in Newport, Rhode Island, a town that I love. And it is called Justo, G-I-U-S-T-O. It is what Kevin refers to as a freestyle Italian restaurant. We will get into what that means in the interview. And I should add, I did not know it at the time, but this ended up being what looks like the last in-person interview I'll have done for quite a while. We recorded this in early December when Kevin was visiting the city. Uh, as I mentioned, Susan was with him. She was present for the interview. Uh, we ended up recording uh, just out of caution for our own safety, although Omicron hadn't really washed up on our shore yet here in New York, but we recorded uh, in Kevin's hotel room. The three of us were all vaccinated, and that just seemed like the way to do it. And of course, shortly thereafter, Omicron, you know, swept into all of our lives. And to be honest, I haven't been socializing outside my immediate family. I've been, I have been out for a couple of restaurant meals, but only with my wife and or our kids were all triple jabbed. And uh, I don't know when I'll do another in-person interview again. I don't want to accidentally get a chef sick. Uh, you know, a lot of us are asymptomatic if we get sick and 
the last thing I want to do is be responsible. Uh, I was going to say indirectly, but I guess directly for causing a restaurant to need to close if their commander in chief gets taken down on my account. So I've been doing remote interviews for a few weeks. I do hope this thing will peak soon and I'll be able to get back to doing in-person interviews because that is, as all of you know, my real true love as far as how to do this show. In any event, Kevin O'Donnell, as I say, is the chef of Justo Restaurant. He's got a great story. He is originally from Rhode Island, which is now where he is located again. He went to culinary school and then held various jobs and chef positions in Boston, New York, Italy, and most interestingly to me, in Paris. That's a whole saga and story in and of itself, and we get into that, of course, also during the interview. Uh, Kevin's a really good guy. I really enjoyed his energy. I really like the way he relates his story. I think he's very in touch with who he is and who he was at various points in his life and career. So I don't think I need to say anything else about it. Before sharing it, though, just a reminder, our feature interview is, as always, presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that as prologue, here is my conversation with Kevin O'Donnell. Here you go. So, Kevin, good to meet you. Great to meet you as well. Let's set the scene. We are, this is life right now, right? We're in your hotel room at the Evelyn Hotel. Well, tell people, what are you doing in town? Why are you here? So, I'm, I'm here just visiting with Susan. We're traveling around, just eating at some places. Uh, I used to live here, so it's like coming back and trying to fit everything I can in, you know, 48 hours. You know, meeting people and coming down to see you as well. Thank you. Before we get into your backstory and everything, why don't you tell people about Justo? Justo, yeah. Okay. So, Justo is my first solo restaurant. We opened last September in 20. 2020. It's what we call a freestyle Italian restaurant. So it's an Italian restaurant. It's right in the water in Newport. Beautiful, kind of ground zero for tourist attractions and right in the harbor. So Giusto means just right or right in Italian. Mm -hmm. For me, Giusto felt right. It was the right opportunity. It was the right timing before COVID. Yeah. It's still the right timing. It, right. it worked out. Yeah. Um, so everything about it felt right. And the reason why it felt right is because in 2019, my wife and I had our first baby. And we were living in Boston at the time, and we wanted to move back home and raise our kid, you know, close to family. So it was the, it was the right thing to do. We wanted to bring our son and have him grow up in Rhode Island. Was your wife also from Rhode Island? She is. Yep. Okay. Yep. So most of our family is all here, or all in Rhode Island. Right. Um, so Giusto, freestyle Italian, what does that mean? It's kind of, you know, we have fun with Italian food. Yeah. I, I, I grew up always eating Italian food, lived in Italy for a long time. I love Italian food, and I think you know some restaurants take it a little too serious, and they follow strict rules about you have to do this with this. Well, and one of the restaurants you worked for in New York City, we could say that of. Most definitely. No? Most definitely. But I think that one of the things that made him, Mark Ladner, so brilliant was that he colored outside the lines. But oh, yeah. In a really, We're talking about Del Posto, we yes, should say. He colored outside the lines in a really brilliant and thoughtful way. He learned traditional Italian cooking first, and then applied fun technique and his crazy brain, you know, reinterpreting the dishes. So. 100%. Yeah. But yeah, all I mean is that that was a very serious... Very serious. I yeah. mean, I think the first four-star New York Times Italian restaurant yes. ever. You know, when they first opened, they actually had like a piano player. Like it was a very... Yeah. 
in a, in a in a twentieth century, I think sense of the word, a very adult restaurant. That's all I meant. Yes. When you say freestyle Italian, I had a sense of what that meant when I first read about you. But you really push the boundaries. Like there, you have a dish on your menu that has tahini, right? It's not like you're just taking some liberties with exactly what goes in to, you know, pasta alla nonna or something like that. Like right. you're going beyond the Italian building blocks, the traditional ones, right? Yep. So when you say, you're smiling as I say this. Yeah, I love it. So when you say freestyle, what does that mean to you? Like what are the, you know, what are the, where are the boundaries, if there are any? Sure. So, you know, like, Mark, um, you know, I learned traditional Italian food and I learned the, the whys and the, the classic ingredients and the classic sauces and the classic dishes. And so freestyle to me is you're talking about the, the dish with tahini, you know, there's raw, a raw vegetable dish called in pincimonio. It's just fennel with lemon and olive oil and that's it. And that's a dish in Italy and that's crazy. And it's, you know, it could exist here in the United States, but some people may not appreciate it. And Part of that is because the fennel just tastes better in Italy or, you know, there's, there's a lot of farmers in, mm-hmm. in the United States that you can grow really nice fennel, but that's another reason why that dish wouldn't work in the United States. So this dish that we use tahini, it was just raw snappies and that's it. We dressed it with tahini and olive oil and calamansi vinegar. And that's, so that, that's the, you know, the inspiration and the thought process started with. So the reference point is Italian, right? The reference point is Italian. Got it. So a lot of times when we're coming up with our dishes, it's either starting with, an Italian dish, an Italian kind of ethos or way of thinking about how to cook, simplicity, quality of ingredients, or it's through a Rhode Island lens, you know, yeah. taking a classic Rhode Island dish like clam chowder. Yeah. Every, you go to every restaurant in Rhode Island, especially in Newport, you get clam chowder. Yeah. And we wanted to make our own version of it that, you know, it's, it is not clam chowder by any means, but it's freshly steamed little necks from Rhode Island that we cook in the pan with a little guanciale and garlic. Super Italian, right? So the guanciale takes the place of the bacon. Guanciale takes place of the bacon. Yep. We add the white wine. We steam the clams open. What are the other ingredients in chowder? You got cream. You got butter and flour to thicken it. Potatoes. So instead of butter and flour to thicken it, we, we make a potato puree. Mm-hmm. A really beautiful potato and olive oil puree. So that's the thickening agent. And then we add mascarpone as the cream. Nice. So that kind of emulsifies in there. But you're also breaking another rule there. Breaking another rule. You're putting cheese and uh, shellfish together. Good call. So this one, this one is one of those rules I think in Italian cooking that's like aged cheese or you know mascarpone. Although it is technically a cheese, it's more of a cream. You know, you can melt it in. Got and it. And it turns into uh, like a fresh cream kind of. Got it. So you're right. You do. We we blur. We color okay. outside the lines. But I want to ask you something. This is a total aside. I, I haven't done a cookbook in eight years, but I did a lot of cookbooks in the time that I did collaborate on cookbooks with Italian-American chefs or Italian chefs. And whenever you see the subject of, of fish and cheese in Italian food brought up, it's it's like this cardinal sin supposedly to combine them. But almost every Italian chef I know or Italian-American chef I know had one dish somewhere in their repertoire where they cheated that, where they broke that rule, whether it was to just thicken something like with some grated parm, you know, like some microplaned mm-hmm. parm. Did you experience this in your training the years that you were coming up? I feel oh, like that is absolutely. actually, I don't feel like that's a real thing anymore. So At least not in this country. For me, and what, what I took away from both, you know, working in Italian American restaurants or legit Italian restaurants like Del Posto, uh, in the United States and then moving and living and working in Italy, I think, you know, the reason is 
one of them overpowers the other, right? And they, they need to be in harmony. The flavors need to work together. So if you can put a soft cheese that's a little milder like mozzarella or um, cacio cavallo or something like that, stracchino, a softer cheese with a stronger fish like tuna, bonito, mackerel, sardines. Something no like harm, that. no foul. No harm, no foul. It actually, yeah. they, they play really well together because yeah. the cheese, the creaminess kind of tones down the the aggressive fishiness, and that's actually a great combination. Yeah, or I guess you could say if the cheese uh, is is kind of like subsumed into the, right? Like yeah. the thing I said about the parm, you wouldn't see the parm or you may not even know it's there. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's like a combination of a, a fat and a seasoning element, yep. right? The salt, yep. like, but if it's, me, you know, melt, melted into the sauce and you're using it instead of like butter at the end, yeah, or, or even like in a seasoning way, like pecorino, yeah. to add a little salinity or something. I could yeah. see that, yeah. yeah. Can we just, I have to uh, interrupt us for one second. We've mentioned Mark Ladner a few times, and it occurs to me, every not everybody might know who Mark Ladner is. Mark Ladner, who was on this show in, I think, August of 20, uh, he recently opened in Boston. Mark is a genius. Mark Total is genius. someone who, for years, was with the Batali Bastianich group in New York, he opened a number of their restaurants. I mean, all you really need to know to get the 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 scope of what he was capable of was he opened a trattoria called Lupa, and he opened what became, not under his auspices, but nevertheless, he opened uh, Del Posto. Like, yep. he was the chef, opening chef, menu collaborator slash conceiver at both of those places, and he can kind of do Italian food in any octave, yes. right? Yep. I'm sure was an amazing person. He he really to was. work for. Yeah, yeah. He's great person, brilliant, like just a wacky mind the way he thinks about Italian food. It was, I learned so much from him. Let's go back now that we've established what you do now. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what your family's situation was. Just paint that picture for us, if you would. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a town called North Kingstown in Rhode Island. Not a very big town. It's pretty close to Newport, actually. You have to kind of drive through Newport. If you're coming from the you know inland part of the state, yep. or you have to drive through North Kingstown to get to Newport. You know, small town, grew up uh, both parents around until I was about 15. They divorced. Um, I have an older brother, and I had a good, I had a really good childhood. Your parents divorced when you were 15. Yeah. Can I, I? Rough. Yeah, it was a tough time. You know, I I grew up playing sports, basketball, soccer, constantly doing stuff. You know, really involved in community and my you know parents same thing. And when they split you know, you, your life is up, goes upside down. And it's like, you know, that's when I started not caring anymore. Stop playing sports. You know, I was in freshman year of high school. I played basketball. And then after that, it was like, you withdrew. spent the next three years just kind of screwing around, basically getting into trouble left and right. You know, just being a punk. Did you have any, you okay with me asking you about this? Sure. Did you have any self-awareness? In other words, I, this is you're describing a very dramatic change in your outlook and your behavior. You probably wouldn't have used the term at that age, you know, like yeah. depressed, acting out. Probably all that stuff applied. Were you aware of that? Were you aware that this was kind of a response to circumstance? Or were you just kind of going on, you know, as a lot of most teenagers would, just kind of going where life took you? You know, you go through phases as teenagers. Some, you know, there's not usually a ton of self-awareness or big picture thinking. Yeah, that's a good question. I think because... While being 14, 15 and having your parents go through a divorce is a, is a horrible time, not that any time is a good time, but I had a really good childhood 
up until that point. So I had the framework. My parents were, were great, you know, and once I got to 15, they, they had their own things going on and they, you know, they weren't able to parent the same way that they could the first 14 years of my life. But because they did give me that framework, it was a phase for me. Being a punk and, and getting into trouble, it was about a four-year phase for me. So I knew the entire time, to answer your question, you know, I knew maybe I didn't have a self-awareness about, okay, I'm depressed and this is exactly why, but I knew that I didn't care about anything. I yeah. didn't care about myself. I didn't care about did you school. Also, did you also have a sense it's like that at some point you were going to pull up on the controls and kind of get it back together? I, in the back of my mind, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, in high school, I made a conscious decision that I did not want to go to college. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't, I didn't want to go to college. I did not like school. One other big thing that I was afraid of was debt. You know, I didn't want to be in debt, which is kind of strange because my parents' generation, they didn't really know about taking student loans out for college. And so many of my friends and people that I went to high school with that went on to college are still paying back loans. And oh, yeah. It's, it was so predatory and still, I'm sure, is. You know, fast forward 20 years, I didn't want to have any debt. Now I'm in more debt than I can ever imagine oh, opening okay. a restaurant. Oh, my but... heart because I'm, 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 <laughs> I don't need to get into it, but like I've, I've always been terrible with money. Well, let me let me preface that by the the debt that I have now is it's the restaurant is, is smart debt I think yeah and it's you know I, I'm opening up a restaurant yeah, and you're betting on your future exactly yeah. and I'll bet on myself yep. every day of the week yep. because I know that if I'm in I'm in and I'm I'm not going to stop until yeah. I get what I yep. what I came for yep. you know so um, so during during high school you know I knew I want, didn't want to go to college it was a it was a conscious decision but I knew I wanted to do something and that's kind of the classic got into cooking. And it was literally all over from there. And I think there's, there's like so many stories about, you know, chefs and restaurant people that that's kind of how they enter the yeah, kitchen, yeah. enter a restaurant. Yeah. You know, I was, I was a lost puppy yeah. and, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to find a mentor at one of the first restaurants that I worked at that just, he took me under his wing and, you know, he, he and I kind of had similar backgrounds in a way, like, you know, family stuff that kind of brought him into the kitchen and he was an amazing mentor. Still a really good friend. His name is Walter Slater. The restaurant was called Junction Pizzeria. Uh-huh. So it was it was awesome. It was like, you know, great pizzas, pastas, simple Italian-American stuff. You know, most of it was made in-house and from scratch. This was in Rhode Island? This was in Rhode Island, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, started as a prep cook, worked my way up. I was a busboy, server, cook. Is, is I, this the kind of place I imagine when I imagine the Rhode Island, like, pizzerias I've gone into, like, rock and roll in the kitchen? Totally. The vibe in those places is great. Like, yeah. when I... We were talking before we started recording. My friend Jimmy Bradley, who I used to do a show with, who used to be a chef owner here in New York, you know, I spend time sometimes out at his place in the summer... And there's a place right up the street from him. And I go in there and I swear to you, I'm like, I'd like to work here for a summer. For it was a, summer. a blast. It seems like the hours fly by. It seems like you have a great time with your coworkers. For people who haven't been to a place like, there's a very unique vibe to these places in Rhode Island. Yes. You talk about you do freestyle. Like there is often that kind of a spirit about some of the things on the menus in these places, whether it's the actual pizza toppings or some of the stuff that they serve as sides, totally. or, right? There's, yep. It's very often idiosyncratic. It's a house thing. It's it, they would never call it something like a signature dish. Yep. I, I think a lot of times these things had their. My guess is there had their roots in in stoner culture. Um, <laughs> that's my theory. Um, they just yep. nailed that one. Yeah. They just have that feeling about it. they're a little decadent you know they're yep. combining two things you normally wouldn't to great effect you <laughs> know frying things that you probably 
wouldn't have thought to fry. I mean, this place up the street from Jimmy, they they do. It's basically like uh, almost like tater tots, and they they cook them in the pizza oven, take them out, and then they just shave a shit ton of parm over them. I bet it's delicious. And some black pepper, I think. Yeah. You know, it's an amazing snack. Cacio e pepe tots, tater tots. Before we move into more of your kitchen jobs, food culture in your family and your own relationship to food. You know, it's funny. My my mom likes to claim that, you know, she went back to school. She went back to uh, college. She'd never gotten her college degree because she was a stay-at-home mom um, her whole life. Her and my dad got married when she was really young. She was 17. They were high school sweethearts. No. Oh. No. He was he was uh, four or five years older than her. Okay. Um, he was in the military. You know, they met at a party, mutual friends, kind of blind date situation. Wow. Uh, but she was 17 and they got married. You know, she had her own thing going on with her family and getting married at 17, leaving the house. They were married for 25 years in about 20 or 24 years, something like that. Um, she decided to go back to college, get her get her degree because she had never gone to college. And So not go back to college, go to Sorry, college. go to college. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And the, she took night classes, wow. which meant... Now my dad was in charge of cooking dinner, okay, and he had no clue how to cook. No Which clue. side of the? Well, your your last my name last name's O'Donnell, so, so I'm assuming it was your mom who was the Italian mom, influence. My mom is the is the cook, and okay. you know I'm I'm a mutt. I always say I'm just Irish and Italian, but there's a lot more I'm going a, on. I'm a total mutt. I'm, I'm an American mutt. My mom's side is definitely where I get the the cooking and the and the love for food and the appreciation for using all the ingredients. You know, my grandmother wouldn't waste a thing. So well, I she definitely was Italian. Get it. She was Italian and, and um, a little Swedish, too, which okay. is fun. So she had that. I mean this in the best way. I forget how you say it in Italian, but I love the word so much when Italians say parsimony. Parsimonious, right? Okay. Like stingy. Yeah. yeah. Like oh, you yeah. don't waste. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, it might be some questionable things that you, <laughs> that you ate, but it's like, we're but not going to throw some, it away. But also sometimes an improv that's like magic, right? Yeah, totally. Speaking of improv, my brother is also a chef, and he got that improv... Must have been from my grandmother. We called her Mama, which is Swedish for a grandmother. And she was a total improv. Just take random ingredients out of the fridge, out of the cupboard, and make sometimes magic happen. It's a and, gift. And he's got that. It's a gift. Yeah. One of the things that I love about Italian food is that so many of the best dishes, la cucina povera, right? The, yeah. the, the poor kitchen. So many of the best dishes are, are made out of the scraps or yeah. made out of the cuts that nobody else wants or yeah. you know repurposed into a ribolita soup or papa pomodoro or something that's... Panzanella salad. Well, and how many things in Italian food are made by taking what's left over and turning it into something else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another whole thing. But you also were, as as I believe I've heard you describe yourself, a voracious eater. Oh, yeah. I love... As a kid. Uh, yeah, and that's... And going back to, you know, my mom claimed that when she went back to uh, college that that's what inspired me to cook myself because my father didn't know how to cook. You know, when it was time for him to make dinner, it was hot dogs, mac and cheese, pancakes, bowl of cereal. Literally. That, he that, did nothing that to was alleviate the, the cliche of the hopeless American oh, no. home male <laughs> cook. No. Yeah. Fire up the grill. Right. Open up, open up a box of pancake batter. That's it. Um, you know, fast forward 20 years, he loves to cook now and is, is actually a really good cook. Really? But, did you teach him? Um, I think he... I wouldn't say I taught him necessarily, but he was certainly interested in coming into the restaurants that I've worked at and watching and coming into the kitchen. You know, that got his interest going and my brother as well. So that's when I really would start to play around with food a bit. When my mom was in college, you know, making simple things, quesadillas out of 
shredded cheese and doing, you know, stuff. I was 15 years old, 14 years old, whatever. So um, nothing too crazy or advanced, but I would play around with mac and cheese or I would play around with a instant ramen and, you know, add stuff to it and, you know, kind of make it, make it my own. And Mm -hmm. it, it was fun. You know, once I got into my first restaurant job, you know, it was even more fun. You know, every, every new place that I went was just more and more fun. So, yeah. um, Walter Slater, my first real mentor and, and friend now at Junction Pizzeria, yeah. he actually, he inspired me to go to college. And, you know, in high school, as I, as I mentioned, I, I was very anti-college. I was like, no way. He went to Johnson Wales and they had a program um, that I could do a continuing education program and, and go to school on the weekends, get an associate's degree in two years, same amount of time. Um, but just going on the weekends. So I would go all, so I enrolled, I went, Mm -hmm. I worked two full-time jobs. I I cooked breakfast in the morning. Um, and then I worked at Junction Pizzeria at night, Monday through Friday. And then I would go to school Saturday and Sunday, but zero, zero college debt because I paid for it with my two full-time jobs. And that was the kind of the way I could swallow going back to school is like, yeah, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to I'm going to pay for it. So wait, you went, when you say back to college, so, I mean, Johnson and Wales, most people, certainly most people who listen to the show think culinary program. Yes. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was the culinary. culinary yep. Strictly. Strictly culinary. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, you glad you did that in hindsight? I am actually really glad. Um, I, I didn't graduate. I, I dropped out, but a year in, I had to do my externship looking at, looking at all the places I had to put three places on, on paper and apply to go to either. These are the three places I chose. Ireland, I'm Irish. Italy, obvious, right? Mm-hmm. And then St. Thomas, because I wanted to go to the beach. Nice. Because I'm 19 years old and I wanted to just chill out. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, going yeah. in the sun, right? So I put those three places down and I'm thinking about it more. It's like, okay, well, let me, let me think all three of these places through. What's going to happen if I go to St. Thomas? I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to probably meet some fun people and, you know, go to the beach and party and That'll be a fun experience. Probably not going to learn too much. Might be exposed to some interesting fruits and exotic vegetables and things, but that that might be it. If I go to Ireland, that'll be cool. There's a lot of history. I'll get to see you know where my family came from. I'm sure I'll learn something. I'll go to all the pubs I can go to. I'll go to Italy, and then I'll. You know, it's obvious why mm-hmm. why I chose Italy. I think, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad I did. Uh, the chef that I extern for his name is Lorenzo Pellegri and he was my next really big mentor also still a good friend he had a restaurant in Orvieto in Umbria called Ristorante Zeppelin and his style of cooking with Italian was was all over the place it was just like you know he had been he was actually a professional bodybuilder um no joke he used to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. when he was in his mm-hmm. 30s and found himself in in the restaurant business just out of just organically that seems self-defeating to me but (laughs) But he liked to challenge i mean he he was like ripped and then now he wanted a new challenge so right right right. anyhow so he um you know the experience that i had there was amazing i I lived there for four months for my externship or five months had a great time um had to go back to back to school right externship was over i go back to rhode island to johnson and wales Mm -hmm. i go back and i meet um, one of my best childhood friends at his college graduation party at this little restaurant called um, Trattoria del Corso. So I have a great lunch, it's Italian. I'm like, wow, this is great. I just came back from Italy, having a blast. It's this Italian restaurant. I've literally been back for like a week 
and I meet the owner of the restaurant, my next mentor. So I meet the owner of the restaurant, Aaron Edwards, and he offered me a job. And I was like, oh man, I gotta, I'm going back to school. Like I just came back. He gave me a great opportunity. You know, I'm, I'm fresh back from Italy, externship, exposed to the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, so for him, it was like, yeah, I want somebody in my restaurant that loves Italian food and they just saw it. So I took the job, dropped out of college. Um, I worked with Aaron for a year as his chef de cuisine. I was young. How you know, old were you? I was 22, wow. 23, years, 23 years old. Really young chef de cuisine. He was a great mentor. He's a chef. Um, but he, when, I, when he hired me, he kind of ran the whole restaurant, but mostly the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously trained me in the kitchen. So he kind of always had a watchful eye on me and, and helped me in the kitchen and was teaching me. And he kind of took the Italian cooking to the next level for me. Walter gave me all the framework for like real cooking and how to how to be an adult and responsible work and work and, ethic. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, Lorenzo, the next one, taught me about Italian food and how to you know understand the ingredients and the flavor of it and the palate. You know, taught me how to use my palate and and I learned a lot. Um, about the culture there. So I have a question for you. We just met for the very first time. We'd never even spoken before. I don't even know if we follow each other on Instagram, but <laughs> you come across as a very soft-spoken guy. You seem at least outwardly, you know, somewhat modest. You've already, we're, we're only into your early 20s, you've already alluded to three mentors, right? Now, I was very lucky when I was younger. I had I had several mentors, but I think that's very unusual. You know, most people, you're lucky if you have one. Do you have any insight into why you were able to have so many important, influential, guiding lights in your professional life? I, I think, you know, going back to when I was 14 and, and my parents split, like I said, I was a lost puppy and I, I needed, I was looking for a mentor. I was looking for a direction or a purpose mm-hmm. in life. And when I found that with with Walter, you know, I've always been I've always been a competitive person, sports my whole life. I love competition. I love, you know, trying to do something that I don't think I can do, and I I love, I just love adrenaline and I love uh, challenges and I love feeling overwhelmed and overcoming that. Kitchens to me were just a natural place, but I also was forced to grow up quick. You know, parents splitting at 14. Mm-hmm. So I think from a really young age, you know, being forced to become an adult before I was actually ready made me a responsible person. And meeting Walter and, and working with him and the way that he pushed me and trained me and, you know, was that first mentor, I cared and I gave a shit. And I, and I proved myself to him and I proved myself to me. So you got hooked on that feeling. I got hooked on that feeling. Yeah. And, and you know, I worked with him for four years uh, before I eventually moved on and, and moved to Italy, and then worked for Aaron after that. Um, so every place that I went, you know, working at Junction Pizzeria, that first place with Walter, I knew I wanted to open my own restaurant. So I knew when I was 22 years old, 21 years old, working with Walter, I wanted to open my own restaurant. So I didn't always know how I was going to do it financially, but I knew how I was going to do it to learn and to push myself and to just grow as a cook and a restaurant person, mm-hmm. I knew that I just had to work my ass off at mm-hmm. every single place and learn as much as I could and devote myself. And that's what I did. And, and you know, each place that I went, I devoted myself and I gave a hundred percent everywhere I went. And, you know, that kind of answers your question about, you know, they, they get, what do they get back 
they got they got me. They got everything. They got whatever Huge. they wanted from yeah. me. So they were willing to give me whatever I wanted. Yeah. And I was a sponge, and I still, yeah. you know, I still am, but just in a different way. You know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. I think opening my own restaurant um, without any partners has been the biggest challenge for me. And but also, it's kind of it's like sparked this love and passion again for what I do. Um, for the restaurants and being able to learn something new, you know, I, you can always, there's always something to learn. And I, you know, I've been a cook for a really long time and I've been a chef for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And certainly I could always keep learning as, as a cook, but learning the process and, and, you know, so many other things outside of the kitchen has, has really inspired me again. You spent time at uh, Del Posto in Del New Posto, York city. Yes. I'm just fascinated, um, and I know you was a, a, I guess, a co-chef. We would say how you ended up in Paris. Oh my gosh! Um, can we jump to that? Yeah, is sure. That so, cool? yeah, absolutely. So, Le is that how you say it? L'Office, Yep. Yeah, which is like yep. L apostrophe office. Literally the office. Yeah, that's yep. how it's spelled. Like the show. How did this come about? To go back to when I worked with Aaron Edwards um, at Trattoria del Corso in Rhode Island. After working with him, I moved back out to Italy. And Lorenzo, my old friend and mentor at the restaurant in Italy, called me up and said, I'm looking for a sous chef. Will you come out? And I absolutely moved out there for three years, dropped everything. Like, that was my life. Had a car, lived in the countryside. Like, crazy life. Um, we ended up doing, Lorenzo and I were planning a James Beard dinner in New York, probably 2011 or 2012. And he and I were both going to fly together from Italy and come to New York and do this dinner together. Um, for the restaurant and something happened family related last minute he couldn't come so I ended up coming to the James Beard house and, and did the dinner for the restaurant in Italy and um, when I show up there's there's this Parisian guy working at the James Beard house his name is Charles Campagnon my next mentor Parisian you know living in New York for two years started off at Jean George and then ended up we wanting to go to uh, James Beard House to meet other chefs and just network. And so he worked at the James Beard House for a year. So when I show up, he thinks this Italian guy, this European's coming and he's all excited. You know, there's a there's an Italian chef coming to the Beard House. I can't wait to talk to another European. And, yeah. and I show up in this American kid and he's like, the hell are you doing here? Uh, but anyway, we, you know, we connected and we had fun at the dinner and we stayed in touch and probably about two or three years later, I was working at Del Posto and Charles had called me up. He moved back to Paris and, you know, was working there for a while. He called me up and said, I'm, I'm opening my own restaurant in Paris. Uh, and I'm looking for a chef. Are you, are you interested? And at this point I'd been at Del Posto for a year. I was really loving it. Like really loving it. I was in love with the city. I was finally, you know, moving up. I'd just been promoted in the kitchen. Things were good. Life was good. And now I have this opportunity to go back to Europe and be the chef of a restaurant in Paris. And I'm like, I don't know how to turn this down. I, I went to Mark and I told him my intentions. And he looked at me like, You're, are you sure? Like, this sounds kind of weird. You don't really know this guy that much. And he's offering you to be the chef of his restaurant in Paris. So I I, I went, you know, I put my notice in and, and uh, you know, I thought I'm not going to get an opportunity like this. I get, this is a very unique opportunity mm -hmm. and, and I got to go for it. So three weeks later, I was living in Paris. And two weeks later, we opened the restaurant. I was kind of like anti-French food growing up. I loved Italian food. They're, they're at odds with each other. A little bit. Just, not in terms of flavor, but the whole approach yeah, is could not be more different. Could not be more yeah. different. I was somewhat prepared to go to Italy because I know the food at least a little bit. 
I speak Spanish. Spanish and Italian are a little similar. So I was able to learn Italian very easily. French, I had no clue, no clue. I, you know, I was walking into a, a job and in a situation that I was not prepared for finding purveyors, hiring people. Luckily the, the owner Charles was an enormous help. And the moment that I got off the plane, he picked me up and we went to uh, Frenchie. And that was the first restaurant that I went to in Paris and, and met Greg Marchand, who's the owner and the chef. And he just was so friendly, he took me under his wing, gave me his cell phone number. It was like, call me, I'll tell you where we buy the meat from, the vegetables from, which which markets to go to, yada, yada, yada. And then every other restaurant that, that Charles took me to, he introduced me to that chef and that owner. And the network of chefs in Paris is amazing. And you know, I met more and more people, uh, Wendy Lynn, was another oh, great. I, know. I knew one. Wendy when she was in New York. Yeah. I don't know if people know, we don't have time, but so sure. She, she was amazing and introduced me to Daniel Rose and yeah, you know, yeah, all these yeah. other people. And um, it was an amazing experience. I am so glad that I did that. What I learned in the ex exposure to the ingredients and the people, um, the cooks that I worked with, I learned so much from them. It was amazing, it was great. Do you have any insight in, I mean, this has become a thing, right? You just mentioned Daniel Rose, um, you know, Americans, there's a restaurant now, again, I don't know if my pronunciation's right, Rig, Rigmarole over oh, there. Sure. It's two, two former New Yorkers. Go back, uh, not what, 15 years? Twenty, for, Certainly 20 years? Unimaginable. Yeah. Copenhagen, tons of restaurants there run by, you know, like people like Matt Orlando, yep. who's from California, yep. right? Do you have any insight into this? Like how this became, is it just a natural byproduct of the increased, I guess, globalization of everything and, and the fact that this country has kind of just become a player on the world stage in a way that it wasn't? Is it that simple or is there something else? It's a couple things. And I, I can speak to my my experience or my opinion on Paris, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, Copenhagen, I'm not really sure, but you know, Americans are competitive at nature and they want to be the best and they want to be great, right? We're the best country in the world, right? And American cooks want to learn everything they possibly can. And they traveled all over the world. They worked under, you know, great chefs. And so they have a great caliber of cooking style. And I think certainly what I've experienced too is, you know, Americans have to work a little harder. It's better now, but 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think Americans had to work harder to make food taste good because they had to manipulate it a bit more. Our ingredients weren't as good 20 years ago you know, our raw products as European products or, or products from Denmark and, you know, everywhere else. I so, agree. so I think that's a bit, that's a big part of it. Yeah. But then for Paris to speak on Paris, there was a bistronomy movement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of walked in, by the way, I, I went to Paris with my friend and, and co-chef, uh, um, Michael of, of SRV, Michael yeah. Lombardi. Yeah. So he and I went out there together and he stayed for three months, huge, amazing help to get the restaurant up and running. Like, the two of us did everything there, but we walked into this bistronomy movement, you know, where chefs were leaving Michelin star restaurants, opening up their own, you know, Eve came the board, leaving, you know, his status and fame and doing, you know, La Vente Comptoir and La Comptoir and all these places, Greg Marchand, same thing with, with Frenchie and Frenchie wine bar, just simple, fun, you know, high, high quality ingredients, but they're not charging a, an arm and a yeah, leg yeah. and, White Does Chateaubriand fit into that? Chateaubriand, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So th this this bistronomy movement, which it's still certainly happening, also coincided with the Parisians' obsession with Brooklyn. We had just moved from Brooklyn, so 
you know, the, the headlines uh, for Figaro Scope and all the all the Parisian publications that that picked up on Lofis opening and you know this American chef coming over. It was like Brooklyn chef. You know, everything was like Brooklyn chef. I'm like, well, I'm from Rhode Island, but yes, I just moved from Brooklyn. But you know, it was it was a almost like a marketing. It was so brilliant of Charles. I, I don't think what? that was I, his intention, but no. But I forgot about this moment. But I remember it must have been around this same time. Bourdain had been over there. Yep. And gave an interview. I don't remember to whom when he came back, and he said the two things on everyone's lips there in the culinary realm. One was David Chang, and the other was Brooklyn. Yeah, it's so true. I think that was exciting for people, you know. And and I think the reason why people loved the food so much was. It was different. You know, I was cooking Italian food in a Parisian bistro and I was American. So it was, it was, you know, different French style of cooking and different dishes that people, you know, they'd had ravioli, they'd had vitello tonato and things like that, but not the way that, that I was cooking it. And I don't think I was any, you know, mind blowing, you know, avant-garde way approach of cooking. I was just, it was just different than what people were used to. And it was unique. I was very lucky to be in Paris like two days recently. I didn't know this till I was there, and I, one of the people I was with is a Brit who now lives in in Paris. Italian food is having a moment over there, absolutely, yeah, in a way that I don't think it ever has. Yep, yeah, there's so a lot of Italian good Italian restaurants in Paris. Yeah, I agree. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of American chefs there too. You know, one of the first weeks I was there, Daniel Rose was you know he's American from Chicago, I think, and. Moved out there, married a French woman, and that was it for him. I think he's since come to New York, obviously, like Cuckoo. And, and about um, to go to Chicago. Again. About to go back to yep. Chicago. And there was another couple um, that opened a restaurant called uh, Verju. Right. And that yeah. was, so it was, it was Lofis, right? Yeah. Me, American, Daniel Rose, yeah. who had been there for a few years and really well established, very, like, he was, he was legit. Mm-hmm. And then Verju had just opened around the same time as Lofis. So there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of buzz. Like, we kind of, started this American movement in Paris. And since there's, you know, Amazing. four or five more other yeah. restaurants and chefs that are there. Which what, uh, what languages do you speak? Well, do you speak French, French and Italian? No, French is because I was so forced to learn so many other things. Like, like you had to do like crash course. Yeah. Crash yeah. course. Um, we hired, uh, cooks that could speak English and for, obviously they're French, but so I so they could do the ordering. They could, the, they they could, could help me with the order. Yeah. Um, eventually, I would call in the order myself. But you know, they would call it in and um, you know help go to the markets and help translate to the dishwasher that didn't speak any English at all. And um, so I didn't learn as much French as I as I would have liked to. You know, it was, like I said, it was a crash course. Italian definitely. Um, you know, being there for three and a half years mm-hmm. on and off, um, certainly speak Italian. Spanish is probably my about the same as Italian right now, just working in kitchens my whole life. And, yep. you know, that's been an important language. And that's it. Only because you and I both have transit situations. Uh, talk to me about your Boston restaurant. Yes. So uh, leaving Paris, moved to Boston. Moved to Boston. What <laughs> year was me. that? 2012. Uh, moved to Boston and uh, moved with my wife, Sarah. Uh, she'd already had a job and I was looking for a job, found a great, great little restaurant that reminded me of Junction Pizzeria. They did pizzas, also did charcuterie. I'd just come from France. So I, you know, I developed a whole charcuterie program, getting whole pigs in. I had a lot of fun. And that's where I met two of our business partners. So Michael Lombardi and I 
he he ended up moving to Boston as well and, and came to work at the Salty Pig with me. And then um, he eventually went, was their chef at one of the other restaurants in the restaurant group, really small restaurant group. And so we met our business partners from SRV there. SRV was a concept that Michael and I had come up with. Um, it's a Venetian restaurant. And, you know, we'd loved, he and I met in Italy. We, we worked together in Italy. It wasn't in Venice, but we loved Venice. We both had been numerous times. Uh, you know, the Baccaro Cicchetti scene is so much fun. I was just going to ask if Cicchetti figured into that oh, yeah. restaurant. I oh, love. Yeah. So for people who don't know, the easiest way to explain Cicchetti is it's like Italian tapas. Yes. Yeah, yep. small plates. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, a couple bites, things on skewers, just standing room only. So and there we, are Cicchetti bars. Yeah, Cicchetti bars. So yeah. we built this restaurant um, kind of around that concept. And we had a little chiquetti bar that you stood at and glass case and food on display. We took it very seriously. But and, fun. And fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it was in the, it's in the south end of Boston. It's, it's a really great spot. You know, we wanted to also, we, we were very true to Venetian food. Risotto is huge there. We cooked risotto to order. And that's something that, you know, we've been passionate about because Michael and I both worked at Del Posto. And Del Posto uh, cooks, cooked risotto to order, which is very unique in a restaurant setting because it's hard and it's time consuming and it's from scratch to order from, from scratch to order they yeah. didn't do the 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 par cook it and nope. sheet it out and cool it and then just they did not you know what i mean the la- oh, and then yeah. do the last oh, yeah. addition of stock start to finish start to finish to order 30 minutes start a rice oh my god so we we did that at srv and we had a risotto station start that's to a finish. commitment oh my god and we had three risottos on the menu let's say there was a lobster risotto uh uh, Parmesan risotto and uh, vegetable risotto, Reese BC or something like that. Three different stocks, three different garnishes. Same rice. You could be working same rice. Same rice. <laughs> we, we used doc. Yeah, we used carnaroli at least. So yeah, same rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, imagine being a cook and having you know eleven different pots stirring at the same time, all different times, all different risottos with different stocks. Like talk about time management and organization skills. Now, if I'm honest, I do think that's better. It's way better. It, the, the result's better. I so, I mean, it, I know a lot of fancy restaurants who've done that shortcut I just mentioned. Yeah, a lot. You can make it good, of course. Oh, yeah, it's delicious. Absolutely. And you can parm it up, and like sure. it's delicious. But it's not. It's not the same. It's not quite the same. Yeah. Um, so we did that at SRV, and you know that was really unique. And uh, another really big thing that we did at SRV that they still do. I talk about it in past tense because I'm not there anymore, but it's still an amazing restaurant. Yeah. Um, they have a a stone burr mill, so we. We wanted, we love making pasta. And, you know, there's a lot of great Italian restaurants in Boston. And Mike and I were thinking how to, you know, we want to differentiate ourselves and we want to make pasta even better than we've made it in the past. How can we do that? What are the ingredients of pasta? Flour and water or flour and egg. Let's buy the best. Let's find it. So we went down this rabbit hole and decided to, to buy an industrial uh, stone burr mill. And we, we built a pasta room that was enclosed so we could keep the flour contained and hundred percent of the pasta flour and the bread flour is milled in the restaurant, which is an insane process and an insane big endeavor for a restaurant. I wouldn't recommend yeah. it for a restaurant yeah, necessarily, yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah. And it's amazing. I learned so much about, you know, fresh flour and the flavor and the, the process and it's and you, all, it's different. Was it worth it? Yes, I think so. There's, there's a couple of, this is a thing now, right? Like there's, I, I wrote an article a few years ago about these small bakeries that are milling their own stuff, right? Like uh, there's a place called Selu in DC 
um, that's super committed to it. There's a is it in Texas? Emmer and Rye. Emmer and Rye. Yep. They mill yep. their own flour for their pastas, yep. right? Yep. It's a big commitment. It's a huge commitment, but it gives you control. You you know we worked with three or four different farms. Uh, one of them was in Massachusetts, but you know you can't you can't buy the reason why it's it's such a commitment and it's so hard is you know flour is shelf stable. When you go to the store and you buy a bag of flour, it's yeah. shelf stable. I was just going to and it's about and this. it's consistent. You know yeah. King Arthur flour yeah. for bread flour is the same year after year. You buy a bag, the recipe yeah. comes out the same. Yeah. That's not the case if you buy grains that are an heirloom variety. That even if you buy the same variety year after year. Each season differs a little bit because of the climate or the yep. weather, or the rainfall, and it's crazy the the variables that come into play with how inconsistent it can be. Um, so it's kind of like an ever uh, learning process, and and you're you know you're constantly hands on with the, with the food, which I love. And then it was from there to yeah. So where at, you so are now? SRV um, still open now, and you know about. Four and a half years in, uh, my wife and I found out we were having ha- having our first baby, and this was uh, December of 2019. He was born, and so 2019, you know, I obviously knew most of the year that we were going to have a kid, and we were toying around the idea, like, where do we go? What do, what do we do? Do we raise him in Boston? And we thought that whole thing through. You know, none of our family is in Boston, um, so and eventually we made the decision to move back home to Rhode Island, where we're both from to raise our son close to family. You know, we wanted to, we wanted to be home and and have him have a similar life. You know, we wanted him to have a life that we thought would be best for him. And, um, also for us as well, you know, to be parents in Boston, you know, daycare is crazy and just life is big cities. Yeah. I mean, I miss living in New York city, but I got to say for my, for my kids is, I mean, we didn't move till they were 11, but I, I'm glad we did it. It's easy, it's so much easier. It's so much like you said, more affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, better everything. quality of life. Yeah, you're just you're you're not swimming upstream as much. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, so we we decided to move back home, and he was born December nineteenth. Uh, I left SRV the end of February of 2020. Oh my god! The last day of February, I signed the lease at Justo. I'd, I'd seen the space. I found the space. You know, in the in the winter of 2019. Loved it. The, I met the owners of, of the hotel. It's at Hammett's Hotel in, in Newport. Met the owners, like really hit it off well with them. Um, really respect them a lot. And, you know, I knew it was going to be a great opportunity. So signed the lease in March. It had the liquor license transfer hearing at City Hall March 14th. Oh, that was the day New York shut. <clears throat> that was the day. March 14th. So there were three big things on the docket there. Uh, City Hall that day was... Are they going to cancel the the St. Patrick's Day parade in Newport because of COVID nineteen? Yeah, which is a huge deal because St. Patrick's Day in Newport is big. And then we we had our liquor license hearing, and that was the last city hall m- meeting, and the government shut before down. quarantine. Yeah. So we got we signed the lease and got the liquor license. The last city hall oh meeting before quarantine, and and you know so now I'm like oh my god I just signed a lease. I can't I just believe you got open as soon as you did. Yeah, it, you know, thankfully. Um, I mean, you opened what six, seven months later. We did, yeah. So the hotel, the hotel was a little delayed in opening. Obviously, I think they were slated to open in April of 2020. They ended up opening in June, which is all things considered not bad at all. Unreal, you know. Yeah. And we were hoping to open actually in July. Ambitious, you know. Restaurants are just perpetually late in their openings, but we ended up doing like a little kind of mobile satellite bar and kitchen 
within like a pop-up in the hotel. So we opened the business in July, serving food, sandwiches, simple stuff, um, and drinks to hotel yeah. guests in July. And then the restaurant opened in September. So the restaurant was, you know, pushed back a little bit, but you know, we hired a great team. We had a great architect, we had a great designer, we had a great contractor, and they made it happen. And we we did it. And you know, obviously loans were tough throughout. You know, I was sure. I was expecting some from this bank and some from this bank and some from this family member. And I, you know, I just pulled together all the loans I could do. And uh, you know, once the once everything hit the fan in March and April, people pulled back and I rightfully so and I understand that. And uh it made things challenging, which, you know, I love challenges and it, it made me dive in and even more invested and even more like I'm, I'm sinking my yeah. teeth into this and I'm going to make this happen. And I think we ended up with a really great restaurant. And that's our show for today. My great thanks again to Kevin O'Donnell. My thanks to Susan Hosmer for joining us and arranging that interview. And if you do find yourself in Newport, Rhode Island or close enough to it to find your way over there, please do check out Justo Restaurant. I'm actually pondering a, a, an overnight getaway for that express reason sometime in the next couple of weeks. I think Caitlin, my wife, and I are going to pay you a visit, Kevin. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, please throw us a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating there or on Spotify or Stitcher. Please tell a friend, do a social media post. We ask that our listeners support us by helping us stand out in an increasingly crowded podcast field. That's really the best way to help us out and we would be eternally grateful for that our thanks as always to after school special for our music please check out their album double barrel single entendre on itunes and please follow us our handle is at chef podcast that is at chef podcast thank you as always for listening hang in there and we will see you back here soon with another episode of andrew talks to chefs